Welcome to CentCast, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters. Coming to you from Tampa Bay, Florida, with your host, Joe Buccino. Today on CentCast, we've got a guest, a guest over the phone, actually over Zoom specifically. That guest is the commander of U.S. Air Force Central, otherwise known as 9th Air Force. And if you're in CENTCOM, you know him as General Grinch. In fact, I had to learn the pronunciation of his actual last name because I've never heard it pronounced out loud. It's General Alexis Grinkowicz. Now you know why they call him General Grinch. All right, he assumed command last July, and he's coming up on about a year in the job, 10 months in the job. I thought it would be an interesting time to talk to him about how he views such a complicated mission, how he reflects back on his first 10 months, his set of challenges he's seeing, the opportunities he's seeing. He's had a little bit of everything, striking the IRGC in Syria, flying with partners throughout the region, supporting our partnership with Israel during a a very large exercise. And, you know, he's also had to deal with aggressive Russian actions in the skies that he's been very vocal about. I want to talk to him about that. And I also want to talk to him about innovation, specifically about Task Force 99, which is the innovation task force he's established in Qatar. Let's bring him on the show. You know, Air Force Central Command is CENTCOM's Air Force Service Component Command. It's headquartered on Shaw Air Force Base in South Carolina with a forward headquarters in Aludid Air Base in Qatar. And General Grinch is a 1993 graduate of the Air Force Academy. He's had a wide variety of operational and strategic experiences, a lot of experience in CENTCOM over the course of his career. In fact, he served as the Director of Operations from June 2020 until he took command of AFCENT last year. We're going to bring him on the call. Let's talk to General Grinch. What is the role of the Air Component Commander in CENTCOM? That's a really good question and a a very broad one. So, you know, any Air Component Commander's job is to command the Air Force forces that are brought to the region and in a joint environment. It's also to command the joint air power that's provided to the air component. So, for example, if a carrier strike group was in the region, then the excess air power off that carrier strike group that wasn't being used by the maritime component falls under the command of the air component commander. The same thing with marine air when it's brought in, when there's access to the marine requirements for their organic missions, it falls under the command of the air component commander. One really unique thing about CENTCOM over the years is that there's also a coalition role to it. So I'm the uh, air component commander. I'm the joint forces air component commander, uh, but I'm also the combined forces air component commander, which means we have several nations in the coalition that provide air power under my tactical control every single day that we operate over Iraq and Syria. And that's been true for decades here in CENTCOM uh, because we don't, we don't ever fight alone as the United States for every one of the major wars, and you've talked about a lot of them here on Suncast, mm. for, for every one of them, uh, we fought as a coalition. And so it's bringing all of those different air forces together to, to generate joint fires, joint effects in whatever battle space it is that Suncom's fighting in at the time. I know you focus on, on partnerships, as you just alluded to, the partner air forces in the region. I imagine it's a wide mix of capabilities. Do you find yourself maybe dropping down to a lower capability level to partner, or, or what is that like? I don't. I wouldn't uh, say it that way. I would say each of our partners has strengths and weaknesses, and frankly, the air power that the United States provides to the region has different capabilities over time that might be stronger in one area and not as strong in others. And so, 
as a combined commander, what we do when we look at the, the ingredients that we have in front of us in terms of the air power that's being provided by the joint force and by our coalition partners is then try to allocate that against missions in the most efficient and effective way possible. There might be some countries that are exceptionally good at defensive missions and we'll put them in those defensive roles. There's others that might have a unique offensive capability that we'll try to leverage at certain times. I wouldn't think of it as a, uh, a degradation of mission as we integrate everyone. It's actually makes us much stronger when we operate uh, together. Are you finding that partners are questioning CENTCOM's commitment, AppSense commitment to the region, you know, given that we've withdrawn a large volume of force uh, out of the Middle East, uh, out of the Levant region, coming out of our two decades of war? Yeah, look, you know, there, there certainly a, has been a narrative, uh, and people have seen the reduction of, of uh, U.S. forces regionally. What I would say are a couple of things that, that work on the counter to counter that narrative. The, the first one is we're still here and we're not going anywhere. And the key capabilities that we rely on are command and control nodes, the enabling forces, the airlift, the tankers, those sorts of things. They're all adequate to the task that we have at hand. And they're all, they're all used regularly in conjunction with, with partner air forces in the region. So I think they see that while some might be trying to take advantage and, and push a narrative that we're, that we're quote-unquote leaving, the, the reality for many of our partners bodes otherwise from an air power perspective. The second thing I would do is I would say that we are looking to expand the space where we're able to collaborate. So one of the places we've done that is in the innovative space, which is one of General Corolla's objectives with people, partners, and innovation. And in that case, what we've done is stand up a new combined task force, Task Force 99, which uses digital and unmanned technologies in order to try to solve some of the really hard problems that we've we've got. And it's it's new as a combined task force, but we already have several coalition members that are contributing to that task force, either on a part-time or full-time basis. And we're using real capabilities to get real outcomes, whether it's an intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance or ISR uh, missions, or it's just creating things that we know we'll be able to deploy that'll give our adversaries a, t- a tough time to deal with. How big is Task Force 99? How, how many people do you have working on this problem? Yeah, it's a pretty small group, but they're, they're super empowered. So, uh, you know, they are, um, you know, 10 plus or minus, uh, plus or minus a few people. Uh, it kind of comes and goes as we go through deployment cycles here in the region from the U.S. perspective. And then we have four nations that have contributed either part-time or full-time personnel to it. Uh, they've got a budget that's in the millions of dollars that they're able to spend. Uh, and go out and develop new capabilities and, and leverage them. And then, you know, you can't also judge that group by just the people that are assigned there, as, as you know, and as we learned really from the Navy's Task Force 59, which does their digital and unmanned work in building an ocean of things, if you will. What we've learned from them is that it's really the partnerships and the access to the innovation ecosystem, the industry, uh, industry partners, academia, and other organizations really within DOD or other, other nations that you leverage. And so, for, for a very small investment in terms of people and a relatively small investment in terms of money, you can access a tremendous amount of capability and talent. Sir, and, and so you started Task Force 59, I believe, at the end of towards the end of 2022. So you're a few months into this, less than six months into this, I believe. What are some of the things Task Force 99 is is building towards? What are they looking at? What are some of the accomplishments? Yeah, so we've done a few uh, a few different things. Uh, we've done a lot of work in the electromagnetic spectrum. So that was some of the early work we did, looking at could we build small capabilities that we might be able to deploy in that would contest that electromagnetic spectrum. In other words, jammers that we might be able to uh, deploy into different locations. 
just building them in a garage, uh, if you will, and trying to come up with cheap and inexpensive uh, devices that we might be able to fly in on a UAS and deploy over an area. We have a series of small UASs. We're uh, on the cusp of getting into the, the dozens of small UASs. We have had, uh, one particular small UAS that we have uh, done an operational evaluation on. It's got a wingspan of just a couple meters and a really good camera on it. We're using that for intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance to go out and reconnoiter locations. We've done uh, an operational assessment of that, and we've actually done real-world employment most recently with that. I can't say where in this environment that we've done it, but we have gone out and done it, and, uh, and it's, it's paying off. Have you brought partners into this effort, or is there, an, is there a consideration to start bringing partners along with this? Yeah, absolutely. We've got, uh, like, uh, we've got several nations that have partnered with us uh, and partnered with each other that, uh, that have sat there, you know, sitting on the 3D printer right there with us as we're developing these, these new capabilities. So they, they are right there. Every air chief I talk to in the region is really excited about this. They're all going up their chains of command to get permission to contribute additional people to this effort. They see the value and they see where this is going. This is, this is in many ways the future of warfare, right? Warfare, particularly in the gray zone, if you will, uh, where these kinds of technologies are going to be tremendously important. And I would argue they'll be important even once you get into high-end conflict. So everyone sees it. Everyone sees that it's a new era, that uh, the data is king. Uh, and from an air perspective, having things that can fly through the air and provide the data uh, to you uh, is extremely important. So you've got, sir, a lot of complexity in your mission, and you've got a lot of different mission sets that, that seem to vary pretty widely from obviously deterring Iran in the air, prepared to strike targets in Syria, close air support to the ISIS fight. Obviously, you're leading your organization, you're reassuring partners, you're innovating. Meanwhile, you've also dealing with Russia, which flies through CENTCOM's airspace. There's a deconfliction process there. And I know you're concerned about that. What, what are you concerned about and what are you seeing? With the, with the Russians, what we have seen over, so I've, I've been serving in the CENTCOM region, not in this role, but in others since, uh, since the 2019 timeframe. So it's been a few years and I've, I've seen the movie play out for a bit. What I would say is I've seen a change in the Russian behavior uh, over time. Back in the 2019 to 2020 timeframe, certainly there would be times where we would have uh, arguments and disagreements over the deconfliction line. But the Russians didn't fly where they weren't supposed to or where it wasn't established either by the protocols or by the norms of behavior. And, uh, and, and we had our own norms of behavior and adherence to the protocol uh, as well. The, the Russians have deviated from that. And they've, they've done it a couple of times. It's gone through a few cycles. The most recent cycle uh, started back around the 1st of March, where now several times a week they will fly uh, into the airspace that is covered by the protocols that they should not be operating in, that they recognize they would need to deconflict with us uh, to operate in, but they fly in there anyway. Uh, and what concerns me most, Joe, is they, they do it armed, uh, and not just armed with air-to-air -air weapons, like they're on some sort of a, a, a defensive patrol, but they'll, they'll fly over uh, with air-to-ground munitions on board very close to our locations on the ground. Uh, so to me, you know, it, it is not what I would expect out of a professional air force. I think they're intentionally trying to pressure the United States and, uh, and, and make us worry about, you know, the, the stability of our presence in the region. But uh, th there's, a lot of, there's a lot of risk of escalation, particularly in the context of the recent uh, incident over the Black Sea with the MQ-9 and the Su-35s. That sort of miscalc... You know, I, I don't expect that the Russians are going to intend to 
drop ordnance on a U.S. position or, or engage a U.S. manned aircraft. But I certainly see a lot of potential for miscalculation and miscalculation when you got a thousand knots of closure and missiles on board is not a place where I want to be. And a professional Air Force wouldn't act like that. Yes, sir. And just for uh, those who don't fully remember this, the incident with the two Russia, Russian uh, Su-27 fighter jets aggressively flying around an American MQ-9 was uh, in March of 2022 over the Black Sea, as you identified, sir. So what, what are you doing about this? I know there's a deconfliction line. You have contact uh, with the Russian Air Command. What's, so what are, you, what are you doing? How are you trying to adjudicate this? Yeah, you bet. In fact, I was, uh, I was in our uh, battle cap today, one of our command and control facilities when the Russians called. And uh, it, was, it was one of the calls that I actually like to hear. It was a routine call asking about some deconfliction of uh, is one aircraft going to be going here? What time are we going to have the next meeting? Those sorts of things. Very short, very professional, fully adhered to the protocols. There are other times when the Russians will call and they'll be very aggressive over the phone. They will complain about activity that uh, that we've undertaken, uh, or we will call them and complain about activity that they'll get very defensive with us and, and bow up to us. So we just walk through the logic. We adhere to the protocols. We tell them when they think they're violating. And then to the extent we can, you know, we're trying to publicize what they're doing, put a little public pressure on them to let people know that, you know, the vaunted Russian Air Force is not acting in the manner that you might expect out of a, out of a, frankly, an Air Force that I've had a lot of respect for my whole career. I'm losing that respect based on their recent behavior. Yeah, we're recording this in uh, April, towards the end of April 2023. And so you now have a squadron of A-10s in theater that's new. How are you employing that aircraft and how are they working alongside the other squadrons in, in uh, theater? Yeah, Joe, great, great, uh, great segue. You know, one of the things I was going to mention earlier when you asked about reassuring partners, one, one thing that we have shown we can do as the United States in particular is rapidly surge air power uh, into the central region when we need to uh, or bring additional capabilities into the region when the situation uh, demands. And again, I've seen that over the over the past several years. That also uh, lets people know that we're here to stay, even if we're not here all the time with all the things that they might have seen in the past. We can bring things in very rapidly, uh, like we've done in previous exercises. So the A-10s are a great example of that. We had a recent cycle of uh, escalation with Iran, some attacks on our forces in Syria. We did some uh, strikes in response, and then you you were you were in kind of a, a potential escalatory cycle. One of the things we did is we accelerated a deployment of A-10 aircraft uh, to the region. Uh, and the A-10s, uh, it's an older airplane. There's plans to divest it, uh, but it's got very capable air crew that have a lot of combat experience in this region. The A-10 itself can't do everything we would want it to do, but it can do a lot. So a, a few things we're going to use it for. We can use it for exercises all day long. A lot of close air support exercises that go on this region, combined arms exercises and events, training events with our partners. Uh, so we will do a lot of what we call that here in the air component is partner nation integration. We'll do a lot of that. Uh, the A-10 is also uniquely uh, suited for overseeing uh, Straits of Hormuz transits uh, for our, uh, the maritime component when a ship's going through that region. The A-10 with a, a massive 30-millimeter gun and the ability to fire laser-guided rockets, perfect to go after small boats should they become a threat to our forces as they uh, transit through, uh, through an area. Uh, and then, of course, having an A-10 overhead, as uh, folks in your service have argued for years, very comforting when you have something that that's capable is, is that capable from a close air perspective. We're also going to do some experimentation with it. So back to the innovation theme, we're going to try putting some new weapons on it. Uh, we're going to try uh, using it in some different roles. We'll see 
how we can use it for counter unmanned aerial systems for some of the one-way or kamikaze drones that have been uh, used against our forces. And uh, we've got some new weapons that we're going to try out on it from an air-to-ground perspective. You can operate the A-10 from a lot of different places. It can land on a dirt strip. It can land on a highway. Uh, and being able to employ firepower from locations that an adversary might not expect us to employ firepower from could be very useful uh, should things escalate here in the region. Sure. So A-10 is bringing an extra measure of capability here as you seek to deter Iran and you continue the fight against ISIS and violent extremist organizations competing strategically with uh, with Russia in the region. So, you know, maybe one way to land this podcast episode as a fighter jet, one way to land it or to close this out is let's just think about your 10 months in command and a wide range of experiences Reflect back on on what surprised you, what challenges you've observed, what opportunities you're seeing for the future. What's heartened you about this? I've got a I've got a ton of things I could I could unpack there uh, and reflect on. I'll try to limit it to just a just a couple. The the first thing that has really been comforting to me is the strength of our partnerships. Every single air chief or air defense chief that I engage with in the region. Loves, uh, loves having the CEMCOM's air component uh, there in the region. They uh, appreciate our outreach to them. They love working with us. They learn a lot from, uh, from us, and we learn a lot from them. Uh, so that has been extremely comforting to me. And because of kind of the narrative that you talked about the, near the beginning, was a little surprising to me. I thought it would be more challenging to, to get them to, to partner with us, but there's no challenge whatsoever. Uh, they value that partnership, and they, and they want more of it. From a, uh, from a warfighting perspective, I think we do... The, the kind of war fighting that has happened here over the last, say, five uh, to seven years in CEMCOM very well. The air component is extremely well-tooled to providing support to special operations forces, ground forces, and the fight against ISIS, uh, to executing limited strikes. A big part of my focus now is taking us to the next level and being uh, sure that we are retooling for major combat operations uh, should, should they occur. And so a lot of that is building capabilities and capacities uh, both from a, a human resource perspective and a training perspective, and also from a technology perspective, to really increase our ability to target. So we're on a path to be able to execute a thousand dynamic targets a day. That's the kind of scale that you need in major combat operations, frankly, against a near-peer adversary and other AORs, and uh, and something that would be extremely valuable should things escalate in this AOR against other uh, lesser adversaries. So. We're on a path to do that. We're leveraging a lot of the innovation work that's happening at CEMCOM. We're leveraging uh, artificial intelligence to help us automatically identify targets and do it at scale and rapidly using a ton of new tools. So the thing that excites me the, the most is that I do feel like we've built a culture of innovation. You know, General Carrillo will talk about how he wants CEMCOM to be the innovation engine for the Department of Defense. My, my objective is to be General Carrillo's innovation engine for CEMCOM. And General Brown, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force's Innovation Engine for the Air Force. Well, great, sir. You know, thanks so much. We covered uh, a lot of topics here in a relatively short discussion. So I want to thank you for your time. I know, uh, obviously, you're extremely busy uh, over there in uh, in Shaw and in, in the region. And uh, really thank you for your leadership and uh, look forward to your continued command of, uh, of AppSensor. All right. Thanks a lot, Joe. It was a pleasure being here. That was General Grinch. Great discussion. I should say that he mentions General Carrilla. He's referring to General Eric Carrilla, who is the commander of U.S. Central Command. And he briefly mentioned the history of AFSENT 
Air Force Central Command. That history is the lineage of 9th Air Force, which was established in 1941. And it was actually in the Middle East, what's now the CENTCOM region, in June of 1942, that the 9th Air Force saw its first combat. This was against Hitler's Africa Corps fighter planes over Egypt. And, you know, the 9th has a very rich history. That's probably a subject for another uh, episode. Obviously a very thoughtful guy, very innovative, and focusing on 9th Air Force now, on absent now, amidst all the complexity in the region, leading his troops, and focusing on innovation, so projecting uh, absent into the future. Thanks for listening to Sentcast, and we want to thank our guest, uh, General Rich, for coming on the show. Thank you.